This week on Dig Me Out, part one of a two-part interview with watershed bassist Joe A. Strike, author of the new book, Hitless Wonder, A Life in Minor League Rock and Roll. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I am your host, Tim Minichi, and joining me once again, my co-host, Mr. Jason Ziak. Jay, I got you to do something for this episode that you have not done since possibly, what was it, high school? You, you performed a miracle, Tim. I did. I tell you. I'm kind of ashamed to admit it, but but you did perform a miracle. I am one third of the way from being recognized as a saint by the Catholic Church. <laughs> Just want you to know. What I was able to do was get you to completely read a book, which anybody who knows Jay know that Jay wrestles with words and books. With reading. With reading. <laughs> I'm a way, designer, uh, so I'm not so good with the the word thing. Yeah, you're you're more graphically oriented, and that's fine. Yeah. Some people yeah. are, um, you know, more comfortable with that. I put a book in your hands, well, on your mobile device, mm-hmm. and you read it. And I did. We have the author of that book joining us. Now, this isn't just the author of the book. For those of you in Columbus who are listening to this, and then for those of you outside of Columbus, which is probably the majority of our listeners. A lot of people are familiar with CD 101, which is now CD 102.5. This band got a lot of love and still, still gets a lot of love from CD 101 and 102.5. I'm just going to say the name of the band. I feel like I'm, this is like the most epic buildup (laughs) in the history of bands. I'm talking about watershed Columbus's own watershed. And we have on the show with us tonight, author and bassist and vocalist. I didn't even ask how to pronounce the last name. So I'm just going to go for it. Joe Ostrich. Is that right, That's Joe? Kind of, if, <laughs> except the O is wrong and the Stritch is wrong. Other than that, you got everything right. It's actually, <laughs> strangely enough, A-Strike. And if you kind of just look at the Reich part first, maybe that makes a little bit more sense. So it's more German than I was anticipating. It actually is, yeah. Fun fact, it's the German word for the country Austria. Okay. Oh, so there you go. I'm going to type that. Austria. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to type that because I am going to forget by the end of the show. <laughs> because in my head for the last, uh, since we've been in Columbus, what, 15 years along, <laughs> I've been reading it as Ostrich. So in my head, it's programmed that way. Well, I think you, got, you guys are one third of the way towards being saints for just not calling it Ostrich. Because that's where everybody goes. I knew not to go in that direction. And to be honest, between me and Jay, we're pretty used to having issues with our last names being mispronounced. Jay has a silent D before his last name. Looking at it right now. Yeah, I can see that. And when I try to explain that the E-C-I is pronounced Chi, it's a mess. It's a constant (laughs) mess. So I mentioned in the ramp up, not only are you a musician uh, going on, when did, let's say, Watershed first album or release in 91? So you have been doing this for 21 yeah. years? Yeah, we actually started in 1985. We weren't called Watershed then. We were called The Wire, but it was the exact same lineup as the 1991 lineup. So if you really want to be generous, we've been, been going at it for 27 years. And when you wow. started, did you anticipate that you would be writing a book 
about all that time that you had spent in a book in a in a band touring throughout the country actually it- yes because the whole thing you know i'm not really a musician i just went deep 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 undercover Excellent. to find out what it's like to be in a band. <laughs> so when i was 15 i was like you know i want to i've heard about these journalists who do crazy things like get themselves embedded with troops in afghanistan in order to get the real story i had a 27 year plan that I was going to embed myself in with a rock and roll band and try to get what rock and roll is really like. And only now is the true story able to come to the surface. <laughs> How very George Plimpton of you. That's uh... I know. But Plimpton can do it for like one game with the Detroit Lions. I, I play the long game, 27 <laughs> years. Yeah. I like how you, 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 uh, you just craft, you, you craftedly like a missed becoming hugely successful because that wouldn't have been as an interesting story. I know. I sabotage. <laughs> I sabotage. Just right on the fringe. That was good brilliant. work. Good work. <laughs> so the book that we're talking about just came out this month. Actually, is called "Hitless Wonder: A Life in Minor League Rock and Roll," and that came out just like two weeks ago, a week ago. Yeah. Okay. June fifth. So, can you give everybody who may not be familiar with Watershed a little brief? Because the, the book is about the band. It's about the history of the band. Can you give them a little brief synopsis of what the book is all about? Yeah, I mean, I think most of us have, have read some, maybe not read, but at least, you know, we know the story of some musicians out there. And, and unfortunately, I think we can break those stories down into two simple narratives. On the one hand, you've got what I call the Brian Adams Summer of 69 story, which is the Jimmy Quit, Jody Got Married narrative band starts they don't last they break up they get serious with their lives and they move on and they hide their guitar you know down in the basement someplace that's narrative one for bands narrative two for bands is what i call the vh1 behind the music story and you know that's every band they have they skyrocket to success and they eventually blow all their money on drugs and hookers which god i wish we had more money to blow on drugs and hookers (laughs) and then and then somehow they find this redemption at the end and, you know, now they're, I don't know, converted to Mormonism or something like that. But our story is a little bit different in the sense that we started off on the Jimmy Quit, Jody Got Married narrative. We met in high school or even before high school, eighth, eighth grade. And then we just didn't quit. You know, it was the, it was the Jimmy didn't quit narrative. And so I really wanted to write a book about like, why did we not quit? Especially after getting a deal with Epic Records and then summarily losing a deal with Epic Records. That's the moment when every sane band breaks up because they've already achieved a certain kind of goal only to have it lost. So it's like, are are we crazy? Is it admirable that we stayed together for 27 years or is it pathetic? (laughs) And and that's the book. There you go. And you also do a really good job of but kind of telling two stories at once, which is one is just the straight history of the band talking about, you know, like you said, growing up, basically being in a garage, making music, slowly building a fan base, putting out your records on your own, trying to get a deal. And then there's also a concurrent story of you guys. I, I, I'm guessing it's from like the late 2000s when you're on a tour. Yeah, it's actually sort of, two, 2008. 2008. And you're sort of 
going city by city on this tour and you're dealing with your life at that point as well and it, and the two things at certain points intersect based on what city you're playing and the people involved whether they're people that you worked with or people that were fans of the band so it's actually it's got two narratives going at the same time did was that something that you knew from the start that you wanted to structure it that way or was that something that you came across while you were editing and just happened to um, shape the book that way yeah i kind of lucked into it really i went through a draft or two of the book where it was just start at the start and go and the problem with that is it was really boring frankly i mean i wrote through 400 pages and couldn't even get the band out of high school and believe me that's a book that nobody wants to read <laughs> and so i i think of those drafts as me telling myself the story of the band and those drafts were really important because they got me to the question of or the issue of, wait a minute. The thing that's interesting about this story is the fact that we're old now with wives and kids and mortgages and a lot to leave behind at home when we go on the road. And yet we do it anyway. And so those initial drafts got me to that question of why are guys in their late 30s, you know, damn near 40 still doing it? So then I kind of stumbled upon that question just at the perfect opportune time we were about to go on the road and I looked at the list of dates that were coming up on this little two-week tour and it just kind of had an epiphany I'm like wait a minute I can tell the whole story of the band using these two weeks that we're about to play now as old guys as the frame because I was looking at those dates I was like that's the story right there that's it. Mm-hmm. And New York's right in the middle, just like the Epic Records deal was right in the middle of our career, et cetera, et cetera. So I kind of stumbled upon that um, structural, you guys are designers, help me out. <laughs> Devi- <laughs> Devi- device? No. Framework. Framework. I think I- framework. That's it. There Leave the designer. Structural <laughs> framework for you kids at home. So along with also releasing the book, there's a new Watershed album, which is uh, Brick and Mortar. Did it come out the same day? Yeah, the, the same day. And it's you been, I, I guess, seven years since the last uh, studio album, which would be the 5th of July back in 2005. Is that correct? Yeah. I had it counted as six, but it could be seven. Seven seems awfully long, though. And sing, yeah. <laughs> six just seems kind of like yesterday to me. Well, Which I guess it, it's when it falls in the time. year. Right. It's been a long time is the point. Was there thoughts of, hey, you know, if, if I'm going to be putting out this book, it'd be a great time to also put out an album? Or was it just happenstance that the album and the book ended up being, you know, timed perfectly like that? Well, Colin, uh, my partner in Watershed, the other guy who's been around from the beginning and sort of the, the really the driving force in the band throughout the 27 years, he and I always write songs. We've been writing songs for 27 years and in the interim between the last album and this album, we were still writing songs. Um, I think the book, though, kind of gave us a nice kick in the pants and, and forced us to record those songs and release those songs. Would it have happened anyway? Probably, because it seemed like we had a nice backlog of songs going. But there's no doubt that the book is the thing that said, hey, idiots, actually book studio time and get this thing going. And, you know... In the book, I'm making the claim that we're the band that never quits, right? So Mm -hmm. I have to prove to at least myself that we haven't quit. And the way you prove that you haven't quit in music is release new music. So how does it work then? You don't live in Columbus anymore, correct? 
Yeah, I live in South Carolina now. How do you guys write songs? Do you schedule time to come into Columbus and write with them, or does he go there, or do you guys send digital recordings back and forth? How does that work exactly? Pretty much what we've always done, even when I did live in Columbus, is that one of us would start the song and get it maybe 65, 70% of the way there, and then we'd pass it off to the other guy who could add some some fresh perspective to it. And that really hasn't changed. Um, I made some demos at home and passed them off to Colin. You're just using GarageBand, you know, acoustic guitar and GarageBand, and passed them off to Colin a couple months before we had studio time booked, and he did the same to me. We kind of settled on the songs that we thought had potential. And then when I got to Columbus, we got together with the whole band and hashed them out and uh, just to make sure that the songs we thought would sound good with the whole band actually did. So really, not much... Not much has changed in terms of the process. It's just we're doing the same thing from farther apart. When you say that you built up like a, a collection of songs, are you the sort of band that has like 30 songs and you narrow that down to 10 or 12 for an album? Or do you, or do you look at it like we're going to write 10 or 12 songs and work them as hard as we can? It's more like I have 30 songs and I narrow those 30 down to the seven or eight that I want to play for Colin and he's doing the same thing. Okay. And I'm, I suppose like a lot of songwriters, I have, you know, 30 songs or 40 songs or 50 songs or parts of songs, which is the thing. You know, I, I think like a lot of songwriters, I write lyrics at the end. And so I certainly didn't have the lyrics for 30 songs, but I definitely had a lot of song ideas. And then once I played a lot of those ideas for Colin and it's kind of like, well, those five or six sound good, whatever, then then again, that, that kind of forces me to actually sit down and write lyrics and finish them. We need to stop because we've jumped ahead of a lot of releases. We probably should get back to this beginning and do the history of the band. History of the band. Uh, so I'm just going to rattle off some questions because usually we, we have to pull this stuff off of Wikipedia and all music. But when we have somebody from the band here, it makes it a lot easier because we can just quiz you. You probably know better than I do, but... <laughs> So I'll the band, uh, I'm sure that based on the book that you've probably got this all fairly implanted in the brain at this point with uh, with regards to all the information in terms of the basic stuff, like the band forms in in Columbus in what year? You said Nin- yeah, 1985. If you go back to our first band practice with the lineup that became Watershed, we were called the Wire in those days. And then we were just high school kids, of course, and we would t- ride the Coda bus down High Street to campus and go to all the cool record stores like Johnny Goes and Magnolia Thunder Pussy, and we would buy records for 25 cents a disc. And the, the record store guys, who of course are the coolest breed of cat in the world, would ask us if we were in a band, and we're like, yeah, we're in a band. We're, we're called The Wire. And they're like, hey, idiots, there's already a band from England called Wire. We're the wire, and and they would just shake their heads. So the original lineup was you, Colin on guitar and vocals, you on bass and vocals, and then uh, the original drummer was Herb Shup. Shup, is it Shup? Shup, Shup, like cup. Gotcha. So you were a three-piece starting out. You said '85, then the first release comes out in '91. Yeah, in 1990, we finally said, wait a second, that other band called Wire, they're not going away. And everybody thinks that we are these 
you know, kids that don't know any better and can't play very well. And this sounds kind of cheesy, but at that time we decided to drop out of school, buy a van and get serious. And so we saw that as kind of a watershed in our career. And we said, Ooh, watershed. That's a better <laughs> name than the wire. Huh? Huh? Mm -hmm. So we made the switch in 1990. When you say drop out of school, you're talking about college, right? Talking about college at that point. Yeah. So the first album, is it an album or was that an EP, the the first Watershed release in 91? It was a cassette, right? We had, yeah, we had a, a couple 45s and a cassette, but the first actual full-length album that came out in CD, and you know, we thought it was so cool that it came out on CD, was called The Carpet Cliff, and that came out in 91. Gotcha. That comes out in 91. Wait, which one? The, the self-titled one and the, the 91. And Carpet Cliff, is that 92? Or was yeah. there, or there was the same release? I, I don't know that there really was. A, oh, I, the, yeah, the, you're right. There was a cassette that was just called Watershed. And that was a six-song cassette. And that's the one that Willie Phoenix produced. That's what I remember. Yeah, that one came out in 1990. And then the Carpet Cliff came out after that. I was going to mention the, the Willie Phoenix thing. Because for those who don't know, Willie Phoenix is sort of an institution in Columbus and the guys had sort of dalliances with major labels, but basically he was actually in, signed. He was signed to A&M and released one album for on A&M. And if you're in Columbus for more than like six months, you're probably going to end up, well, I don't know if any more, if he's, if he's playing out as much, but basically when we got here 10 years ago, every six months there was a big Willie Phoenix show. He's playing the Treehouse, or he's playing at, Bernie's or he's playing at some Dick's Den or someplace. I mean, even like weird jazz bars, he'd be playing there. <laughs> and it was, uh, everybody knew who he was. He was, he's like the, um, the mayor of High Street in a lot of ways. Well said. In 93, there's a release listed Twister and Other Low Budget Storms. Yeah, that was kind of a collection of the, the like, you know how when The Who would release an album, it would be a collection of their singles? Right. That's what that was. Okay. We didn't really see that as a, a whole new album so much as a collection of the stuff that had been laying around. Most of it released, but not all of it released. But that was, that was important because that was the very last release before we got noticed by Epic Records. And there are two releases on Epic. The first is Three Chords and a Cloud of Dust. And the second one is Twister, which is the three chords in a cloud of dust. That's a like a promotional. Was it a live EP or was yeah. it studio stuff? It's okay. strange. It was our major label debut and it was a live EP. And if you're thinking that it seems odd for a brand new band to be introduced to the world on a major label via a live album, you're right. It's a really strange idea. The thing is, our manager at the time was this guy named David Sonnenberg. And he managed a bunch of big bands. But one of them, the one that was just breaking at that time that was getting really big, was the Spin Doctors. And the way they introduced themselves to the world on Epic Records was with a live EP. And so the way Epic saw it and David Sonnenberg saw it is, well, first of all, it worked for them. And so if something works, why not copy it? The trouble is the Spin Doctors are kind of a hippie jam band. You know, we're live is the thing. And we're a rock power pop band. 
and the way it works in in my world is the kind of old-fashioned way of you get played on the radio first then people come to see your shows then you build up lots of fans then you release the live album later much later <laughs> <laughs> you don't lead with the live album but i, I have to conf- i have to confess that's where i where i first heard you guys uh, see that that's the problem <laughs> yeah we were working college radio at the time so actually was, i was yeah. living in cleveland at the oh, time oh you were okay i was living in i was living in cleveland and uh i think scene magazine wrote a feature on you guys and uh when i went to the record store to f- see what this band was about that was the record that was out yeah. at the time so that's and that's really not the way we would have chosen to introduce ourselves to the world <laughs> mostly because the record's not that good and so here's a dirty little secret for the listeners out there maybe you all already know this but most live albums aren't live at all. They've been overdubbed and doctored in the studio so much that barely anything is live. I mean, maybe the drums are live. I know a live album where the kick drum is the only thing that's live. Mm. A, lot of, a lot of live albums are 0% live. It was all done in a studio and the crowd noise has flown in. This, but when is, we, this is scandalous. I know. Newsflash <laughs> right here. Who would have thought? But here's the thing, when we did when we did this live album for Epic, we didn't know that live albums were not live. And for some reason nobody at Epic made us fake the live album. And so what you get in that release is what we actually sound like. <laughs> and um that's what we actually sound like. For better or worse and um, you know, kinda worse. So you're telling me that live at Budokan and Kiss Alive Kiss Life 2, those are not actually... Those are the only two perfectly pristine live albums ever. <laughs> okay. okay. Oh, so you can sleep tonight. Now. Balance sleep is restored too. to the force. I'm going to jump ahead. We're getting to 1995, and that is the release of Twister, the major label de- debut. You guys had an interesting experience with regards to recording that record because you had some, I would think, not... Uh, the people that were involved were not the first people you would think of in terms of a power pop record. When that came out, or when you guys were recording it, actually, were you, were you guys thinking, if we're making a power pop record, is the guy who made the Meatloaf records the best route to be going? Or were you actually like, he can add a different sound that's going to make us a little more distinct? Okay, so we were 24... And maybe that doesn't sound that young, but to me now that sounds awfully young. And I know I felt awfully young at the time. And the way we got the record deal is because Jim Steinman, who you referred to earlier, he's the guy who wrote all the songs for Meatloaf and he wrote Holding Out for a Hero and Total Eclipse of the Heart. And, you know, he's a zillionaire pretty much. Um, He heard our album, The Carpet Cliff, and he really liked it. He liked it so much, in fact, that he decided he wanted to manage us with his manager, David Sonnenberg, who I talked about earlier. Those two guys were co-managing us, and Jim was really good friends with the president of Epic Records, Richard Griffiths. So Jim convinced Richard Griffiths to fly on the Concord from London to see one of our shows in New York, and that night we were pretty much offered the deal. So we were getting conflicting stories. On the one hand, we were told, it's your record, choose whoever you want for the album, to produce the album. And on the other hand, we were told, Jim Steinman got you this record deal, and this record deal is contingent upon Jim Steinman producing it. 
So we were in a little bit of a pickle. And at 24, we didn't have the guts to say, maybe Jim Steinman's not the right guy for this record. <laughs> and the, the reason why we were able to tell that story to ourselves is because Jim Steinman produced Billy Squire, who we mm -hmm. actually really love completely and wholly unironically. We love Billy Squire. But if you've seen that video, and I know you have because it went viral for all the wrong reasons, of Billy Squire prancing around in a bedroom mm -hmm. wearing a pink jumpsuit, the video that ruined his career, Jim Steinman mm -hmm. produced that album. Yeah. Here's Signs the thing. Of Signs of life. You know it. Yeah. That, that video is ridiculous, but the record's not that bad. And we were mm -hmm. Billy Squire fans anyway. So we convinced ourselves that Jim Steinman really was a power pop guy and that the Meatloaf songs, although bloated, right, really mm -hmm. were power pop songs just, just built up to this ridiculous comical extreme. But you were, had another guy in mind, right? Well, actually... Um, Everybody was telling us something different, which is weird. Our A&R guy, Frankie LaRocca, he used to play in bands with David Johansson, who was in the New York Dolls. So he was a total punk rock guy. Mm -hmm. And he wanted somebody much more punk rock to produce our album. David Sonnenberg, who was the Spin Doctors manager, wanted this guy named Frank Aversa to produce our album because Frank Aversa just produced the song Two Princes for the Spin Doctors, which was a big hit. Frank Aversa eventually did produce an album for us, which is called Star Vehicle, and I think we're going to talk about that later. Yep. So there were lots of choices out there, and the Twister didn't turn out great, but it's not Steinman's fault. It's completely and totally our fault. Twister is an expensive record. It cost us a lot of money to make. That part probably is Steinman's fault. The quality of the record, though, I think we'll take the blame for that. You mentioned In the book, you mentioned that he did... Um... There was a uh, maybe some tracks laid down and for the record that weren't used. What do you remember specifically? Like what songs and what kinds of things were done that you guys didn't end up using? It was actually just some of our inferior material. Some of the songs oh, we've okay. been playing live, we tried in the studio and didn't make it. But there is a funny story in the book where we brought in a session piano player named Jeff Bova to play keyboards on a song, right. and he ended up just playing one chord in one song. And we cut a check for this dude for 5,000 bucks. <laughs> now, our contract with Epic was for 250,000. So 5,000 is a ton of money, but you know, 5,000 out of 250,000 is the hugest percentage in the world. But let me tell you, 5,000 for the one guy to play the one chord, $400 for this reel of tape, $400 for that reel of tape, $2,500 to lock out the studio every day. That money disappears. Yeah. And we were trying to be careful with the money. That's the funny part. We were eating bagels and chicken soup from the bodega every day. But $1,000 sushi dinners were being charged to our budget. Right. It's Stuff that it was just out of your control. Absolutely. And young it's kids shocking that the record on. labels can't make any money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's yeah, all downloading's fault. It's, it's payback now, though, let me tell you. They were living awfully high on the hog for a long time. So the song, How Do You Feel, that started to take off as a single. And when I do, I got nothing to say. Lately, I feel like I'm reading a final chapter. And we're both too scared to turn the final page. 
think you said two weeks after you guys played pretty big show in Columbus, you got dropped by Epic. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. The song started to take off in Chicago. And uh, actually, a big part of that is that Joe Robinson, who used to be a DJ at QFM 96 when we were growing up, she moved to the big rock radio station in Chicago. And she and the program director added the song, and it really caught fire in Chicago. And so then a lot of other stations followed the Chicago station's lead, including the Blitz in Columbus and QFM 96 in Columbus and a bunch of stations in secondary markets all over the Midwest. It was really getting quite a bit of airplay. And so uh, the Blitz booked us for their first annual Blitzapalooza at Polaris Amphitheater (laughs) in Columbus. And it was actually the very first show ever at Polaris Amphitheater. The very first show was kind of like their dress rehearsal to see if the venue would work. So we played that show and there was a really big crowd there that night. The biggest crowd we've ever played in front of by far. It was about 10,000 people or so. And so after that night, of course, you know, we're getting a lot of radio airplay. We're thinking, this is going to be huge. We're finally catching on. The underdogs have made good. And one week later, we get dropped by Epic. And they were able to pull sort of a an accounting uh, or, or con- a contractual gimmick in that you were contracted for two records, right? And they we used... Actually, we were actually contracted for one. But oh, okay. what happened is... That live album kind of came back to bite us a little bit because in the contract there was a clause that said two years after the release of our first well release, um, the Epic Brass would have to meet to decide whether they wanted to you know, keep up on the label or not. And that's the kind of clause that's supposed to work in a band's favor because it keeps the label from stringing you along forever. It forces their hand. And in this case, when they sat down to meet, even though the album Twister, the first real album, had only been out for four or five months and the single was just starting to catch fire, if you went back to Three Chords in a Cloud of Dust, that had come out two years before. And so they were forced to decide, do we want to keep Watershed around or not? And they decided, well, these guys have two failed albums, including that live album, and then now this one, which is doing okay, but, you know, not compared to the other bands on our roster, like Silverchair, Oasis, Pearl Jam, Michael Jackson, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So they cut us loose. And it's time for them to sort of do a, a little bit of um, re- reallocating resources, right? They can kind of think about it in terms of, oh, we're going to put this much more money in this band. Why don't we take and give it to, to Silverchair instead? So that was my takeaway from yeah. reading the book, is it's an excuse for them to sort of use that money somewhere else and sort of make that's another true game. and and money was a little bit tight for them at the time because the michael jackson history album the greatest hits collection had just come out and it bombed like it only sold two million records which of course sounds like a big hit but for michael jackson records that's a catastrophe and so true. in the wake of the Michael Jackson greatest hits album only selling 2 million records. I mean, let me, let me tell you what they thought was going to happen with this. They thought this record was going to be so big. And here's your proof. They built like five or six life-size statues of Michael Jackson, and they floated them down various rivers in the world, like a giant (laughs) statue of Michael Jackson being floated down the Danube. And so when Uh, the record uh, only sells 2 million, people are going to get fired from that. So they lost a lot of money. They fired a lot of people. They let a lot of bands go. They let a lot of A&R guys go. And uh, we were one of the bands they let go. 
what they don't tell you in that story about those statues is that they were made of 100% pure cocaine, tightly packed, <laughs> and they actually cost about $7 billion a piece. <laughs> you know the street value of a Michael Jackson statue? Yeah. I wonder if they'll still exist. Yeah, they, they were on Pawn Stars last week, right. one of them. <laughs> they'll they, they'll they, probably show up. The guy, the guy wanted $1,000. Yeah, pull it into the back lot. We'll take a look at it. What do you got? I think Rick offered him about $80, (laughs) and the guy took it so he could go play the slots at the uh, Circus Circus. So (laughs) I'm going to jump to the next album, which we're going to actually cover a little bit in depth, uh, Star Vehicle. Well, 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 I think to touch on how you started off this, um, why your book is different, this is the point in the story where most bands quit, right? Yes. Yeah, this is where they throw in the towel. That's exactly it. They get the major label deal. They feel like they've got it made, and then they're dropped, and they're like, why bother? Why do we even continue now? We've already had the brass ring. Why keep going? And they break up. And lots of bands that we really looked up to, even Columbus bands like the RC Mob and the Toll, broke up pretty shortly after they lost their major label deals. Mm-hmm. The Mob released one more album afterwards, but the Toll broke up almost immediately mm-hmm. and the, the problem with us was we were still so young maybe by music business music industry standards we were you know middle age we were probably you know, 25 or 26 at that time but we were at least young enough to say there's no way we're gonna let some you know armani suit wearing dudes in new york tell us that our career is over we know it's not over we just started mm-hmm. it can't be over mm-hmm. and so we just decided we were going to keep going for how long we didn't know but we weren't going to stop then and that's when so the next year you guys go into the studio and you start working on star vehicle which is first released in 97 and then it's re-released in 98 as star vehicle 98 so what what was the reason for the re-release well if you don't mind let me talk about the release first because that was a really huge moment for us because we lost our record contract with Epic. As soon as we lost that, Jim Steinman, David Sonnenberg, all of our managers walked away from us. We had nothing, okay? And then Frank Aversa, the guy who produced Two Princes by the Spin Doctors, calls us up and says, let's do a record at my studio in the Berkshires in Western Massachusetts. So when everybody was walking away, Frank Aversa, the guy who we didn't even pick to do the Twister album, he wanted to do it, and we didn't pick him. We picked Jim Steinman instead. He's a big enough guy that he called us up and said, hey, guys, let's do a record. And so that was big. I mean, we, for all my talk about how we stayed together, we might not have stayed together if Frank Aversa hadn't come around and said, let's do a record now. So he actually just got this band called The Hazies from Florida signed to a big deal with EMI Records. And so they were talking about doing an imprint just for Frank, called Thunder Creek Records, that was going to be a division of EMI. And so we were going to be the, you know, the, the second band after the Hazies signed to Thunder Creek EMI, is what we thought. Mm-hmm. And uh, that didn't happen. EMI you know, decided that Frank didn't deserve a boutique label or whatever, and so they didn't pick it up. But that was still a really big album for us, both in terms of picking us up off the mat, but also... It's a better record than Twister is. We had more say in it, more say in the sound, more say in the music, more say in the production, and it was just a better record. So then why did it end up getting re-released? Was it you just wanted to add more songs? or I know the artwork changed. 
What was the reasoning behind that? Re- really, all that happened is that our sound guy at the time, this guy named Troy Klish, who was also running sound for the Insane Clown Posse, strangely enough, he said, I really love this song. It's great, but it doesn't sound the way you guys sound live. I want to go back and remix it. So he remixed the song Star Vehicle. And then CD101 started playing the remix. And that, that actually got quite a bit of airplay on CD101. So we went back and re-released the album with that remix as the Star Vehicle. And so as we were doing that, we said, you know what? The original artwork for the original Star Vehicle wasn't that good. So as long as we're re-releasing the album anyway, let's put better artwork on it. ourselves a do-over why not sure you're not on a label you can do whatever you want exactly that's exactly that's exactly it (laughs) that's the good part (laughs) epic records didn't give us a do-over so we decided to give ourselves one so after that it's four years basically until the next album which is the more it hurts the more it works you had some changes in terms of who you were working with in the studio and you ended up working with i'm probably going to slaughter his name too Tim Palatin? Is that how you pronounce it? Or Tim Pat- Paddlin. Paddlin. Yep. And he sort of, I don't want to say changed the sound of the band, but he took a different approach to recording when you guys started working on new material. Can you talk a little bit about what he did, what he brought to the band in terms of the sound, and specifically your songwriting? Yeah, Tim Paddlin is an actual musical genius. I mean, I hate to just throw that word genius around, but he actually is like, he went to Michigan university of Michigan on a double bass scholarship, but he quit school because he wanted to spend his time playing in heavy metal cover bands just because he could. But this guy, um, was starting to make a name for himself because he produced the sponge record that had just gone gold. The one with the, the Molly 16 candles song on it, 16 candles down the drain. Mm -hmm. And, uh, he was, he was a friend of one of our friends named John Speck and John Speck put us in touch with this guy. And Tim was a madman. I mean, he made records unlike anybody we'd ever seen before. Everybody we worked with before was like, let's be professional. Like your symbols need to be cleaned. Everything needs to be in tune. There's a way to make records guys. And it's from nine to five. Whereas Tim made records by drinking like a fish not showing up on time, keeping us slightly off kilter so that we could tap into the creative part of our brains. And it worked really, really well. He just got more out of us than even we thought we could in terms of the songwriting. Like, for instance, I would play him a song and he would say, I like everything but the melody, the words, and the chord progressions. Keep working. <laughs> 
keep working, <laughs> keep working. And then, then I'd bring him back like the new lyrics and he'd say, he'd say, there's one good line in this song. Figure out which one it is, keep it and rewrite everything else. And then I'd have to come back a month later with the new songs. So he, he really pushed us hard. And then he also, I think, was the first producer to come to me personally and say, Joe, I really like your songs. Because to that moment, um, Colin Gal, who I mentioned before, who's the other main guy in Watershed and, and my best friend, Colin, Colin wrote most of the songs. It was probably like a 60-40 partnership. And, you know, he was the 60 and I was the 40. And Tim, <laughs> excuse me, Tim Paddle said, Joe, I really like your songs. They're really catchy. They could be hits. Let's work on your songs. And Colin's important too, but let's work on your songs. And so the 60-40 split kind of switched uh, to my direction because of Tim. And I, I think that pushed us in slightly more of a power pop direction and maybe away slightly from more a Springsteen rootsy type direction. So yeah, that was really big. And I, I think for those of you out there, if you're still listening and you want a good place to start with Watershed, I think the more it hurts, the more it works is a pretty good place to start. I, I would agree with that. So I, I, while we're on that, I got to ask, what was the decision behind re-recording Black Concert T-shirt? We just felt like the version that was on Star Vehicle was too timid. My soul's got serious traction. I know a lot of people disagree. Andy Mann, for instance, the late, great Andy Mann from CD 101 in Columbus, he loved the Star Vehicle version of Black Concert T-shirt. And when we redid it to make it, I guess, again, closer to how we sound live, just a little bit more raw and raucous, he didn't like it. He didn't really play that version on the radio very much. He always played the Star Vehicle version. We've done that a couple times in our career. Like on the on the Twister record, there's a song called If That's How You Want It, which was supposed to be the follow-up single to How Do You Feel, except we didn't get a follow-up single. We re-recorded that song for Star Vehicle because we just didn't feel like we nailed it the first time. Okay. That makes sense. And it's funny because I, I, when I... Well, uh, fans won't, won't do that, but it's kind of like, why not? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, Man. you know... I don't want to mention Watershed and Chuck Berry in the same breath, except I'm going to. <laughs> Chuck Berry invented rock and roll. And people ask him all the time, like, why don't you write any new songs? And Chuck's like, because I already wrote a bunch of great songs. Yeah. You know, that's it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so we're, we're not like that, of course, but maybe there's a tiny fraction of that in us where it's like, well, if that's how you want it, it is a great song. And nobody heard it yeah. the first time around. So let's give it another shot. Yeah. 
There's a weird like temporal sort of like uh, of the moment aspect to, to marketing rock music that seems to be. I think that's part of it. Like you got to re- you got to record the songs that you wrote now, and if they weren't, and in a year from now they won't be relevant anymore unless they were hit, kind of thing. You know what I mean? Like if it yeah. wasn't a hit the first time it came out, then forget it. It's like, well, why? Like Van Halen just recorded a bunch of songs that are thirty years old, and I think a lot of them are pretty freaking awesome like i could care less yeah. if they were written 30 years ago like that's a really good that, point why are we trapped in this idea that that my newest stuff as an artist has to be what gets put on the album right now it's not automatically right. the best just because it's newest right it's a good point it's kind of bizarre i don't know so that's cool that you guys do that i appreciate it it's cool to hear the different versions of it you know it's kind of represents some different takes on it and also kind of where you guys are at in terms of your overall you know evolution and career so and it makes for good arguments in bars <laughs> that's true. Like which better. which version's better right so a couple of years after the more it hurts more it works we've got the 5th of july that comes out in 2005 and both these records more it hurts more it works and 5th of july are out on idol records yeah um, that's a really cool label out of dallas this guy named uh irv carwallis he was a Sony and Epic Records was a division of Sony, of course. He was at Sony when we were on Epic. And like so many people who were there at the time, he was fired in the wake of that Michael Jackson thing. And uh, he didn't give up. He went out and started his own label. And he's released, he released the very first old 97s EP on Idol. Centromatic has been on Idol. Um, this band a couple from Detroit, of... we know the fags. He's just really so many good bands. And we were really, really happy to come, to be in that stable of bands. And speaking of Sponge, that he put out a couple of Sponge records. Right. Um, people might remember the band Flicker Stick from the Bands <laughs> on the Run VH1 series back in 2001. He put out one of their records. So, yeah, he's got – I'm looking at his lineup right now on, um, on Wikipedia. And he's got some Chomsky, another cool band. Yeah, yeah. Centromatic. Yes, yeah, a whole bunch of cool stuff. So I would suggest that people uh, head over to idlerecords.com to check out what he has to offer. 2007, you release a sequel of sorts, Three Chords in a Cloud of Dust Part 2. <laughs> that kind of started as an inside joke <clears throat> because, you know, you mentioned Cheap Trick at Budokan and Kiss Alive earlier, and those records eventually had sequels Budokan 2 kiss alive 2 and so we thought it would be hilarious at some point if we had a sequel for three chords in a cloud of dust which is the last record in the world that ever would deserve a sequel which is of course what made it funny but then the thing is we ended up playing this show one night in columbus where we opened up for this band called the dead shembecklers Kind of a legendary Columbus punk band of dudes who hate Michigan. Now, I can neither confirm nor deny that I am actually in that band as well. But let's just say that Watershed found themselves in the strange position of opening up for the dead Schembecklers the night before the Ohio State-Michigan game on the year when Ohio State was number one and Michigan was number two, and they were calling it the game of the century and Bo Schembechler died earlier in the day. Wow. Okay, so the I crowd really... the crowd was raucous. <laughs> the set that is on Three Chords in a Cloud of Dust 2, that is the set 
where we opened up for the dead Schembecklers. Bo Schembeckler died that day, number one versus number two, in front of a sold-out crowd at the Newport. I was going to say, you feel that sh- that record is uh, the be- the better representation of of you live? Oh, one hundred percent. That record sounds like Watershed to me. In all of our, sometimes we sound good and polished, and sometimes it's a train that's about to run off the tracks. I think that record captures it. And there's no overdubs, right? <laughs> See, here's the thing. <laughs> overdubs are the lie that tells the truth. I mean, that if you listen to that record, it sounds more like an actual live band playing than the first three chords does. And mm-hmm. yet, we overdubbed some background vocals, a couple lead vocal parts. We overdubbed a guitar lead because it just... It, Nobody wants to hear that the way it really sounded live. You know, when you see a band live, you've had a couple beers and, you know, you get caught up in the sheer rockiness of the environment Mm -hmm. on record. You've got to recreate that. And so we were smart enough to recreate that. But then, of course, in all of publicity for that album, we talked about how we didn't overdub anything and it was all (laughs) raw (laughs) because that's what everybody does. That's how you spell it. We're crafty. You've learned something after all these years. That's That's right. No one's so, going to hear this, right? Everybody's still going to think that that was all uh, legit. Yeah. yeah. Don't worry yeah. about that. It's cool. Only our we'll edit that out. Only our wives listen to this. Um, <laughs> Just like Watershed Records. <laughs> <laughs> so we, Wait, this takes us. You can get your wives to listen to your records. How do you do that? <laughs> Wait a minute. Yeah. How did you do that? <laughs> and get your wives to listen to Watershed. There records. you go. So that takes us up to uh, the release this year, Brick and Mortar, and the release of the book. So we usually wrap this thing around a particular album, and the logical one would be Twister because that's what sort of made the band in a certain way by being on a major label, but we don't go logically when we're picking these sorts of things. So we went with Star Vehicle mainly because when we were analyzing the lyrics, Jay and I were both, mm, I would say, tipped off a little bit that maybe there was some anger in this record, in in the lyrics. You want to address yeah, maybe, that? Cause maybe we, a little bit. I, I'm thinking about a song on that record called Consolation Prize. That kind of <laughs> that kind of sounds a little bit like an angry song, where I, you know, the the speaker of the song, the character, the singer of the song, says to a a love interest, somebody he's been with for a very long time, exactly that. You are my consolation prize, and uh, ouch. Tease you like 
I can remember I can remember many shows where my girlfriend at the time, who's you know currently my wife, we've been together for twenty some years as well, uh, had to sit there in the crowd and listen to a song like that. And that's to her credit, she didn't. I, I don't know. Send some guy to hit me with a lead pipe across the knee. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, Jay pick and I both picked up on there's. I think there's two levels of frustration that come through in the lyrics. That weird thing where. Even though we've maybe met once in the past, I felt like after reading the book that I know you. <laughs> I'm sure you're gonna get that point a bit going forward, which is gonna be super creepy. So uh, after you know, really diving into these lyrics and then getting the story from the book, yeah, it, it hits pretty hard. I mean, the two come together and you realize what you're singing about, and you know, I kind of cringe of how awkward that must have been um, for her to hear that and not want to punch you in the face. <laughs> But I mean, it's brutally honest. <laughs> yeah. It's brutally honest, which is great. And uh, yeah, it didn't seem like I was when I was writing the songs that I was angry. But looking back on it, I must have been. We must have been <laughs> as a band. I think we definitely had a chip on our shoulder. And and maybe even now, yeah. I think you know, if I have one regret of the epic days, I think it's that I wish we would have had one more shot to do a full length album while we still had the resources of Epic behind us. And the thing that makes me the saddest is that we got dropped after one studio record. It would have been so cool to have another one, especially because we were growing up and we were so young we did the first one. So looking back on it, when we made Star Vehicle, I think there was a chip on our shoulder. We were a little bit upset, maybe at ourselves, because we knew Twister wasn't as good as it could have been, and maybe at Epic because they didn't see the potential in us that we saw in ourselves. Thanks for listening to part one of our interview with Joe A-Strike of Watershed. Be sure to check back in one week for part two. Want to leave feedback? Join the conversation at digmeoutpodcast.com for links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed. While you're there, support the podcast by visiting our donation and merchandise pages. And thanks for listening.